Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I'm at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Ooh, uh, we're going up in the world. Never mind the party conferences. Uh, the Times and the Sunday Times sponsor the Cheltenham Literature Festival. And I'm here all week, as they say. So, coming up with today's episode, a bumper episode. Patrick McGuire and I are doing PMQs Unpacked, but with Boris Johnson on holiday in Marbella, we are instead unpacking great moments in the last 30 years of PMQs in front of a live audience. Uh, so you can find out how we got on with that in just a moment. But first, uh, our columnist panel. And joining us today, Nicola Tuxworth, uh, director of the Cheltenham Literature Festival, and the author, Tim Marshall. First of all, how, how's the festival going? What, about halfway now, Nicola? Uh, yeah, so Wednesday, day five in the Big Brother house, I think. <laughs> um, so, uh, what's been really your highlight well? so far? Who oh, or what's been your highlight? Well, um, that's so difficult to to pull out, you know, one thing. I mean, I, the, the Sunday Times debate was really good, really cool. Uh, Lisa Nandy, Leslie Vinjimori, Emma Tucker from the Sunday, Time, the Sunday Times editor, and Edward Lucas talking about... China. That was a very good bracing debate. Literature's greatest bores. We had a debate on, wow. which was um, which was very. It's just, every year we do a classic lit debate. <laughs> Last year we had literature's worst parents, and the year before that we had Heathcliff versus Darcy. Who's the biggest 
four-letter word. And um, <laughs> so we always do, we always do that, and it's always very very funny. And um, and this year Phineas Fogg won as literature's greatest boy. Well, I was going to say James Joyce. Uh, there we are. Is, is the uh... oh, no, it's the round the world in eighty days, man. Oh, oh, oh. God, no, no, no. He... No, incurious, tight. Yeah. Yes, you know, all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and inspired a very good brand of crisps, <laughs> unlike James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the ki- that's the thing that every author uh, dreams of, is inspiring uh, yeah. a band of crisps. It's about the only thing that Sally Rooney hasn't done. Let's talk about Sally Rooney. Uh, that's a segue, you see. That's what, that's, that's what we right. call that. Oh, that's very neat. Um, uh, so there's a story about Sally Rooney who said that she doesn't want her latest book uh, ch- uh, translated into Hebrew as, mm. a, as a protest about Israel. What, what do you make of I mean, uh, is it the talk of, of the festival? Well, it, it, you know, it's obviously this has been running for a couple of days now, and I noticed, you know, the Times has come down pretty hard, um, uh, you know, against that decision to say it's absurd. I, I mean, I don't particularly want to be drawn into that, but I do think Sally Rooney's sort of trajectory is very interesting. You know, she's still young. I mean, she's, you know, she is a millennial, and... Um, and, you know, she was here a few years ago for the first one. Her latest novel, the protagonist, one of the protagonists, is a, a young female novelist who's been suddenly launched into massive fame and, and wealth and how she's coping with that. And I, I just think the whole thing of how you cope with that sudden stardom... I mean, she was billed as the new Jane Austen, you know, and uh, that's, <laughs> that's a difficult a thing to, to, yeah, to, to yeah. live with. And Jane Austen never waded into any of this stuff anyway, notably... You know, so um, so I just think it's an interesting journey of a young, very talented woman trying to sort of find, you know, what her place is, you know, in terms of influence and, you know, I mean, in the end, it's her call. Yeah. It's her call. It's a, it's a it's a it's an interesting call, Tim, that she's specifically chosen Israel. Well, that's the point, isn't it? And once you start to, and also, it's sort of in in some way implying that the people of Israel are responsible for your... Criti- you know, She has subsequently said this is not about the Hebrew language and therefore mm-hmm. the Jews. This is about the state of Israel. I understand her argument. Uh, I understand you can't change the entire world, but you might be able to change a tiny little bit of it by making a stand on something. But I'm afraid I have a but. Um, it is so fashionable to do this. It is a, would be a lot braver if you were to single out another country, one which has far more egregious human rights abuses. For example, well, pick from a very long list, but let's say China. They're locking up a million Muslims. Where is the, 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 the great statement? It's not fashionable. They have settled, people talk about settlements, millions and millions of people in Tibet and, and in Xinjiang province. Where are all the fashionable statements? Now, I'm not putting myself on any moral high ground, but I, my, one of my books was was uh, sought after by uh, some Chinese publishers. I didn't say no to them because it was China and the Chinese people, but uh, the government wanted some censorship. Well, the Israeli government doesn't want any censorship of her That's novels. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I said no because I wouldn't be censored, yeah. and I, I just think it, it, it's it's a bit weak to single out the one country which always gets singled out because I think mostly because it's fashionable. And the BDS uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, I'm afraid, is failing left, right and centre. But there's also that once you make your... Once you go from being... Somebody writes books and people like them and that's nice, to taking a stance. It's a bit like footballers. There's this big, you know, the, the, the taking the knee, you know, they've got very political during the Euros and, you know, there's their right to do that. But then there is then a question about them going to Qatar next year. And you can't say, well, we're just footballers, mm. we're not political. Once you cross that line... Yeah. 
in as public figures who you're not just doing your day job, you're taking a position, well, actually, suddenly Sally really does have to answer the question about, well, why is China OK? Yeah. Yeah. Why is Saudi Arabia OK? I mean, her, and her books, are, sorry, her books are sold in China, and they yeah. are sold in Russia. And are you really making the argument, and probably Turkey, are you really making the argument that this one country in the world is so much worse than all those others? Before, That's a hard argument before to make. Yeah. That wasn't an endorsement of China, but now it basically is. Yeah, I mean, I think also the other thing is that, you know, certainly her first two novels... You know, there was a lot of very, very interesting content in there around consent and so on, you know, and which really got people talking um, in a very engaged way, you know. So I think, I don't know, I think it, it's, diff- it's tricky to tell people to stay in their lane. Yeah. But it but, is but, a but big gamble. But once you get out of your yeah. lane, you're, yeah. you're open yeah. to... And I'm not saying stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, well, but, OK, why that one and not these yeah, ones? And not and the you, you, there may be a very good answer, but I've never actually heard one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's turn our attention to something less contentious. Christmas. Apparently, that all of Christmas is going to be ready. St- <laughs> 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 well, maybe you know, maybe if you're, you're going to need something else to buy, if you can't buy Sally Rooney uh, books for Christmas, uh, ministers are being warned that Britain faces gaps on the shelves at Christmas as shipping containers carrying toys and electrical goods were diverged from the country's biggest port yesterday, uh, Felix so, because it's full, apparently. It ran out of capacity. Uh, it normally handles about 36% of Britain's container imports and exports, much of it toys and furniture. Is it the government's job to make sure that we've got everything on our shelves for Christmas, Nicola? Uh, no, <laughs> in a word. I, mean, I think this is all very interesting from the point of view of... I think everyone's... We know, we've had this terrible shock of having every aspect of our life micromanaged for months and months and months. And I think we are... I think people underestimate the psychological effect of that, you know. And I think people are feeling very sort of anxious, you know, that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, you know. So, so I, I mean, I... You know, I would generally agree that it's not the government's job to ensure that businesses, you know, deliver turkeys to everyone who wants one, actually. I mean, you know, they might be able to help with a bit of a nudge here and there, but... Um, but, you know, it, it might... If people are looking for someone to blame, they may well blame the government, because they've been blaming the government for the last 18 months about everything. Tim? Oh, I'd like to have a nice 50-50 blame on industry <laughs> and government. Uh, because the HGV driver's shortage actually is partially at the government's door. Um, I'm not making a case for or against Brexit, you know, because it's just so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are going to go down that route, and we've gone down that route, then you do have to get into place uh, policies which make sure that we have uh, the workforce. And that hasn't happened in that particular industry. But the way it falls onto the industry is that they, for decades, have not created a, a, a space in the UK where HGV drivers have a decent living you know, we don't have the showers. We don't have the pit stops. That on the continent, I would rather stay in some of the truckers' places than 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 in a, a hotel because they're nicer. So they get well paid, they're, they're u- well unionised, and they're treated quite well. Whereas in the UK, it's not. So when they when they say, "Oh, here's five thousand visas," and about 150 people say, "Yeah, I, I, I quite fancy but giving up, up a well-paid job to, to do about this." Three hundred now. Oh, I think, yeah, hooray! Dowden said this morning, is, yeah. uh, three hundred was the last like, number we heard, or something." Uh, the, the the industry is saying that they reckon that there we most things will get through. But yes, the, the, when you've got all those containers stacked up, the ships can't come in because there's nowhere to unload. So there's going to be um, a, a serious um, backlog, and. The reason that it's all coming in by sea, I just wanted to put this one in, is that to this day, 80% of the world's goods are traded via water. 
because it's it's cheaper. And so as long as that happens, you know, we are not going to be flying turkeys in for Christmas, nor are they going to be flying in, <laughs> because most of them are already here anyway. Okay. Yes, and I suppose that, that's the point. Just moving. I suppose the, the question is, Nicola, where... No, I think you're. The, well, personally, I would agree with you that we shouldn't just think the government should solve every problem. But when the problems are in part created by the government, you can see why the blame, the finger blame, starts. And I suppose on the on the Brexit point, Tim, in no way wants to rerun 2016. They do, but <laughs> um, there is. I, I remember making this argument back in 2016. One of the arguments against Brexit was the fact it was going to be really complicated and suck up so much bandwidth of the rest of government. Mm-hmm that actually, had we not been having those endless parliamentary debates and all that, maybe they might have run another pandemic planning session. Maybe the transport secretary might have done something about what was going on in Labour. You know, the, the entire Whitehall machine was consumed by Brexit for such a long time. Yeah, that, and it's like at the G7, you know, spending the whole time arguing with President Macron about sausages. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're right. I don't think many people understand this thing about bandwidth, you know, because the government is this big, huge Rolls-Royce machine that's you know, all the parts are working in tandem. No, they're not. There is a bit where there's focus and all the, many of the other um, uh, secretaries of state are suddenly pulled into it and, and priorities change and there, there isn't that much bandwidth. And then you had Brexit and on top of that you've had COVID and, mm. and I do think the machine is um, clunking at, yeah. at, at best. Yeah. Uh, as, we're, as we're seeing all the time. Uh, let's talk about defence though, Tim, because that's one of your, your uh, areas of expertise. And we talked quite a lot about AUKUS on yeah. uh, the, the show in recent weeks. It's deal between Australia, the UK and America, which upset the French so much. But now the French have done a deal as well. Yeah, it's just pronounced in French, AUKUS. You know, it's a bit <laughs> AUKUS for the French. Yeah, the, I, I wanted to just throw this in because it didn't get very many headlines. So the AUKUS deal goes ahead. The deal of the century for the French collapses. They are incandescent with rage, understandably. This is part of the 21st century's... Uh, geopolitical apparatus being constructed before our eyes in the Indo-Pacific region. What the French have done, partly as a response, and this hasn't had many headlines, they've gone into a defence agreement with Greece, out with NATO. Then they're both NATO countries. If, If anyone attacks one of them, all NATO countries come to their aid, Article 5. But this is the first time it's ever happened. France and Greece have agreed that if anybody attacks them, even if it's a NATO country, they will come to each other's assistance. Now, what they mean is Turkey. So two NATO countries have just agreed that if Turkey attacks Greece, France is going to fight for Greece. I mean, that, that's quite a... But it's part of NATO. That should be the case anyway. No, because, because the wording of the NATO Article 5, it, it's loose, but it pretty much suggests if, an, if a country from outside NATO okay. attacks any NATO country. Right. This says, well, even if a NATO... So this is something new. And what it is, is part of Macron's strategic autonomy. He wants Europe to be strategically autonomous from the Americans, which you can quite understand, and it's a chain that runs through French history. But unless you're going to pay for it, it's a pipe dream. And if they go ahead with a pipe dream, and people do do that (laughs) without funding it, you get into trouble because the Americans still are the defence umbrella for Europe. But th- this is part of the French reaction to AUKUS, and, and it's part of setting up a, a European um, army, basically. Tim Marshall and Nicola Tuxworth there, uh, joining us on the Times Radio uh, tent at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Up next, a very special live edition of PMQ's Unpacked. Save 
say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Mark Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yes, 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 yes. Regular listeners will note that Patrick Maguire's finally got his own jingle. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle has finally got round to recording his voice. We are live on stage in the forum at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Patrick Maguire, Redbox Editor's here. How are you, Patrick? I'm very well. All the better for being here in lovely Cheltenham. Now, uh, normally, obviously, this time, Wednesday, midday, it'll be PMQ's Unpacked. We'd go live to the House of Commons. Uh, Boris Johnson's on holiday in Marbella, so we're not doing that. So instead, uh, we're going to unpack the best bits of PMQ's, and some of the worst bits, uh, of PMQ's over, over the last 30 years or so. Um, just to get a flavour of what's changed and what hasn't, and we can also have a laugh. Uh, and then uh, we're going to open ourselves up, Patrick, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, we're going to open ourselves up to questions from the audience. And then, as part of that deal, one of them is going to do the quiz. Can you get to number two? fiendishly ten. difficult and wildly popular quiz. <laughs> it's not difficult, we've made it easier. Well, it is, yeah, it, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was, uh, I, anyway, enough about my failed university challenge career, but anyway, I, I didn't get very far in it. I'm currently Home Secretary, if you want to set that as your target to be. But uh, let's crack on then, and we are going to go all the way back for our first clip to the very first televised PMQs. Uh, this is back on November the 28th, 1989, and the very first question. Let's take a look. Question number one, Mr. Tim Yale. Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall be having further meetings later today. This evening I hope to have an audience of Her Majesty the Queen. Later I shall have talks with President Roe of South Korea, who's on an official visit to this country. OK, let's pause it there and jump in, just to explain what is going on before we actually get to the first question. 
Patrick, explain, anyone who's ever tried to watch PMQs, what's going on with this bobbing up, saying question number one, and then you get the sort of diary note from the Prime Minister? Well, initially, when, in the very first days of PMQs and questions to ministers, you would submit your questions in writing in advance, and some um, eccentric MPs still do that. But, crucially, it gives the minister advance notice of what you want to ask. And uh, when Macmillan first did PMQs, or rather a bit later on, uh, an enterprising MP called Tam Diel, who uh, political nerds in the audience may remember, Maverick, Scottish Labour MP, realised that if you said, will, will the Prime Minister list their engagements for the day, they have to give an answer like that, and then you ask a supplementary question um, that you don't have to give advance notice of. So everybody submits question, the same question, will the Prime Minister list uh, their engagements for the day, which means everyone is just asking their supplementary question to question number one. There we are. That'll be... You can use that with your friends over dinner parties, uh, that top political fact. So we'll act... we can actually go back now. So this is technically Tim Yeo's supplementary question. This is the very first question televised at PMQs. Let's take a look. Has my right honourable friend noticed, following a 45% increase in real terms in spending on the National Health Service since 1979... <laughs> That next year, for the first time, that next year, for the first time in British history, spending on health by central government will exceed spending on defence. And does she agree that this is both very timely in the light of recent international developments, and also makes absolutely clear which party in this house is genuinely concerned? Question. Let's see how she handles Mr. it. Mr. Speaker, I agree with my honourable friend. Next year, the spending on health in real terms will very nearly have doubled since we came into power. There are more doctors, more nurses, and more patients being treated. It is a most excellent record. So, too, of course, is our record on defence. I noticed that in yesterday's newspaper, there was an article by a doctor who had not been of our political persuasion, but who in fact said. Who in fact said an examination of each aspect of the health reforms would least most intelligent and informed people to see that they make sense. He went on to say on health, the leader of the opposition on health, the leader of the opposition and his colleagues have nothing to offer. Well, there we are. That was worth the wait, wasn't it? Um, Patrick Maguire. Most people, if they see PMQs at all, it's probably the front bench exchanges between the Leader of the Opposition and the Prime Minister. This is a reminder that the pointless toadying question, wouldn't the Prime Minister agree with me that we are dead good, is not a new phenomenon. No, it's not. And actually, for, for government MPs and uh, ministers, that is sort of the point. Government whips and the Prime Minister's parliamentary private secretaries, i.e. their eyes and ears in the parliamentary party, um, their bag carriers, sort of full-time lickspittles, will spend Monday, Tuesday, um, approaching Tory MPs who've been successful in the ballot for questions. Or the, uh, and so, you know, they have advance notice of who's going to ask 15 questions. The Speaker picks the others who bob up. They say, what are you going to ask? Or, more cynically, um, would you mind asking about this? Or, even worse, and I don't know, um, you know, that question from Timio slightly before our time, but I suspect at the time, um, you know, difficult that it is to imagine, um, you know, 
serial philanderer, uh, disgraced Tim Yeo, you know, so obnoxious that he was very rare Tory MP deselected even in the, uh, deep blue Suffolk uh, before 2015. Ambitious young MP on the make may well have got a PMQ and thought, brilliant, I can use this to ingratiate myself um, with the government. And there he's asking, you know, he's asking about the NHS and, you know, who knew that even Thatcher would be, the, you know, uh, you know, scourge of the state would be saying, posting herself as the Prime Minister of the NHS, but he's actually asking about a set of uh, quite contentious health reforms that have been unveiled that year, um, introducing an internal market in the NHS, a bit of a Rubicon for Thatcherism. And also, it's one of those things where if Number 10 suspects that that's what the Leader of the Opposition is going to go on, you sort of slightly steal their thunder if you lay out the positive case and everyone thinks it's marvellous already, because you say, well, I've already, I've already, just, you know, I've already dealt with that. And then the leader of the opposition has to think on their feet with varying degrees of success. Uh, we're going to jump now to 90, April 1995. It's Tony Blair versus John Major. A bit of context of this, this conversation, Patrick? Well, this was the day, um, obviously, the, the, the previous years, the early 90s, were dominated. John Major won that surprise majority in 1992 uh, and then almost, almost immediately was plunged into infighting over Europe. Uh, you know, reminds you of anybody. But uh, he... Uh, he, on this day in, uh, in April 1995, had readmitted because his parliamentary majority had become so small, had been whittled down by repeated by-elections in the intervening period between 1992 and 1995, had readmitted the nine Maastricht rebels who he had expelled when they broke the whip to reject the Treaty on European Union back into the party. And this has just been on the lunchtime news when Tony Blair gets up to ask his question. OK, let's take a listen. This is uh, Tony Blair and John Major in 1995. Has he had a chance to see the extraordinary spectacle of the victory parade by his Euro rebels over the government on the lunchtime news? And can the Prime Minister therefore tell us, has he, can the Prime Minister therefore tell us, has he even secured the minimal guarantee from these rebels that on a future vote of confidence... Order. We'll have a... Calm down. <laughs> All of you. That's Betty Boothroyd ticking off everyone Has he the secured even the minimal guarantee from the Euro rebels that on a future vote of confidence on Europe, they will support him? I can sense the concern in the right honourable gentleman's voice. <laughs> Perhaps, Madam Speaker, he would like to tell me whether he has received the support of the 50 MPs who defied his front bench over Maastricht, of the 40 who defied him over European finance, on a single currency where the right honourable gentleman for Copeland was in dispute with the deputy leader of the Labour Party, on clause 4, which half his, I think he called them infantile MEPs, want to keep, uh, he doesn't, and his deputy leader does one day and doesn't the next. These are party matters. Will he tell us what his position is? Uh, Madam Speaker, there's one very big difference. There's one very big difference. Yeah. Oh, no, there's one very big difference. I lead my party, he follows his. Yeah. Now. We could probably jump in there. That's basically the best line that we were waiting for. For that. Interestingly, Patrick McGuire, uh, uh, Patrick McGuire joins me, Red Box editor of... Uh, Times Red Box editor 
when looking at some of these greatest moments of PMQs, it's a reminder that John Major's pretty good at this. This the, the, the memory, the collective memory of John Major being a bit rubbish and being outclassed by yeah, he Tony is. Blair. And the re and the reason Oh see <laughs> Betty Boothroyd's now going to chip in on them. Let's, we, we could probably that's probably enough of that clip. Patrick. And yes, and the the reason uh, the reason that's such a such a devastating barb, and it's become, as you say, a shorthand for um, for the for the later years of John Major's premiership, i.e., constant Tory civil war, a party and a government falling apart at the seams. But actually, you see John Major there; he's assured he gives Tony Blair as good as he gets. And actually, um, the reason that John Major, uh, that Barb is so, uh, is so explosive is because actually John Major had been a very aggressive leader in the preceding two years. You know, he whipped people incredibly aggressively. He uh, expelled, he expelled those uh, uh, rebels, as I mentioned before. And obviously he's a very experienced, uh, very experienced hand at the dispatch box. And ultimately he did become Prime Minister, which you don't manage to do that without Barb being completely hopeless. Although, <clears throat> Theresa May, well, I um, have something to say about that. Um, Let's move on. So it's, uh, we're, we're PMQ's unpacked live at the Cheltenham Festival with a live audience, which is what you can hear in the background. It's not always the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Of course, sometimes we get sort of the B team, the deputies, have a go. Uh, so we're going to jump now to 2006. This is March 2006. Uh, William Hagen, John Prescott. A bit of background of what we're seeing here. So this is the period in Tony Blair's premiership where he's so loathed at home, he spent most of his time uh, jet-setting and glad-handing. Uh, Today he's in, well not today, well no, maybe he's there today, who knows where Tony Blair is at any given time, um, if the money's good enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, um, today he is in Indonesia, he's flying around uh, the southern hemisphere, drumming up support for a deal on climate, just as Boris Johnson is now actually ahead of the G8 summit, which is being held in Scotland uh, in two months' time. Okay, so here we go then, this is uh, William Hague versus John Prescott from March 2006. The Deputy Prime Minister agree with me that he was absolutely right to warn the Prime Minister that government instability would result from saying in advance that he would go. I didn't say <laughs> the Honourable Member must know I didn't say that at all. And even though he's got difficulty understanding what I said, I clearly did not say that. <laughs> it didn't grow... It may cause uncertainties, was the word that was used, and clearly, and those matters that I said on that day, that the Prime Minister makes his decision and he will name the date when the time is right and the transfer is what will happen before the next general election. That is the Prime Minister's commitment. That is what we are saying, and I think that's an important point. I know of no other leader that has made such a commitment as a Prime Minister, and I know that would be difficult for the Honourable Member because he was the first Tory leader to be, never to become a Prime Minister. Well, that was the 2001 election, but at least I got through the campaign without hitting anybody. <laughs> so, let's... We... Look. Look. look at the... I mean, look, look at the state. Look at the state of this divided government. The former health secretary is attacking the budget in the budget debate. The junior education minister saying people are being taxed to the limit. Allies of the chancellor are going around saying Gordon is desperately unhappy. And the pr <laughs> prime minister has fled the country before the police turn up. Uh, uh, 
Asked about when the Prime Minister was going to go at the weekend, the Deputy Prime Minister said, I still think the timetable in people's minds is still reasonably the same. So what... <laughs> what is the timetable? That's for, that's for me to know and him to guess. <laughs> but you know... Reference constantly to the incident that occurred during my election, I thought we'd finish Punch and Judy uh, politics here. Now, I know I will call me, be called Mr Punch. What does he think that leaves him as? <laughs> John Prescott and William Haig there, showing how it's done, uh, cracking some uh, jokes at the dispatch box. I don't think we need to. We could just also say we enjoyed that. Uh, there's a good, some, some good uh, analysis there for Patrick McGuire as well. So, Matt Shirley, uh, bringing you PMQ's Unpacked live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Uh, up next, we are going to uh, relive uh, some great moments. Uh, Gordon Brown on the receiving end of some barbs and then skewering himself. Uh, we'll do that next. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard. Connecting small business owners with the right digital tools and support to help big ideas thrive. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio, live at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival with a live audience. I just like doing that. It's nice to hear. Uh, we, I'm joined by Patrick Maguire, editor of uh, The Times Red Box. We're picking through some of our favourite moments in PMQs. Uh, and we're now going back to December the 10th, 2008. No, uh, no, we're going to 2007. Oh, we're going to 2007. Well remembered, Patrick. 2007. November 2007. Uh, this is a... We were talking um, about the fact that, you know, smaller parties get to ask questions too. This is when Vince Cable... Uh, popped up in the House of Commons to ask a question of Gordon Brown. Let's take a listen. The House has noticed the Prime Minister's remarkable transformation in the last few weeks from Stalin to Mr Bean. out of order rather than order out of chaos. <laughs> but amidst the administrative bungling and even the sleaze, does he not accept that the most damaging remark over the last week came from the services chiefs when they accused him of willfully neglecting the safety and the welfare of the young men and women who serve in our armed forces? Yeah. Mr Speaker, at every point in the job I am in, I will do everything in my power to defend and protect the security of our armed forces. And I, ha I have to say to the right, right honourable gentleman that the defence budget is rising every year and will continue to rise, that when we came into power, the defence budget in Britain was the fifth largest in the world, it is now the second largest in the world, and as for housing, we are spending well, five billion over Gordon the next Brown. ten years. It's a classic years. Gordon Brown tactic of just keep talking. Um, you, must, uh, you must have been in the chamber for this. I was in the chamber for that. Yeah. Well, in the in the press gallery, looking down. So I've been in, I've been uh, covering uh, Westminster since 2005. So it sort of started with uh, with Tony Blair and uh, David Cameron was a new the new leader of the opposition uh, at that point. I mean, the, the the thing about that, I mean, it is one of the best jokes. At, I've seen it PMQs. Uh, 
Gordon Brown's transformation from Stalin to Mr Bean. Vince Cable thought, used to think these up in the bath, uh, apparently, and then try them out on his wife. Who, who hated that one. She hated that one. But, um, but he did it anyway. But interestingly, as a, as a structured question, it wasn't very good, because if he'd done this serious bit and then ended on the gag, Gordon Brown would have had to get up and respond to the joke. Immediately to the gag, yeah. And then, it, because Vince, uh, Vince Cable's question was very, very serious. And obviously, it's a reminder of Gordon Brown's, well... Uh, incredible transformation from Stalin to Mr Bean because he'd been so briefly imperious that summer uh, after seeing Tony Blair didn't call an election. The sleaze Vince Cable is talking about is a donation scandal involving his chief fundraiser, uh, you know, soliciting donations for the election that never was. You've got the war in Afghanistan. You've got dark clouds looming over the economy, which is why um, that sort of Donish ex-economist up there uh, became so popular so briefly. Uh, and, yeah... Uh, but, yeah, as you say, it's a reminder of actually sometimes the, the questions we remember aren't particularly well-constructed questions. OK, this is, um, this is another Gordon Brown clip we've got now. This is from December 2008, sort of uh, reflecting back on the financial crisis. And uh, rather than someone else, is Gordon Brown skewering himself. Let's take a listen. I am going to ask the Prime Minister again about the need to get banks lending to businesses. Putting taxpayers' money into the banks was something supported by all parts of the House in order, yes, to rescue the banking system. But as the Governor of the Bank of England says, the purpose of recapitalisation was not merely to protect the banks, but to ensure the flow of lending to the real economy could continue at normal rates. Does the Prime Minister accept that on those terms his recapitalisation has failed, and when is he going to change it? Mr Speaker, the, f the first point of recapitalisation was to save banks that would otherwise have collapsed. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks and saved... Saved the banks and led the way. We not only saved the banks. Completely loses control. Can't get Tory MPs to calm down after Gordon Brown there claiming we not only saved the world uh, rather than uh, saved the banks. And, and the reason that was so damning is because Gordon Brown was under such intense pressure at home. This was the period where he was, um, you know, allegedly uh, chucking mobile phones and pieces of office furniture um, at anyone within a mile radius of him. Um, was and, uh, so he spent so much of that period, the preceding months, the first G20 that he convened um, uh, was in, uh, was the previous month. He's been flying around world capitals, much as Tony Blair did when his own premiership hit the rots domestically, trying to muster up support for a global bailout. And Cameron could make a very, uh, very powerful critique that shouldn't you be at home focusing on the businesses who are losing out. And the reason that line was so damning, Anne Treneman, who was the Times parliamentary sketchwriter at the time, wrote in her sketch on the day that even the Cabinet sat behind Gordon Brown were having to stifle <laughs> laughter. And there is nothing funnier than when you see those... When I asked on Twitter uh, last week for people to just nominate some of their favourite bits from PMQs, and I was quite surprised how many of them weren't actually PMQs. They were statements or, or other, you know, state opening of Parliament where, where the leaders of the opposition uh, uh, goes up against the Prime but, Minister. But the, ama the amazing thing about being in the chamber, which is much, much smaller than this room, which you don't necessarily realise on TV, is we, we can look down 
and say if, you know, uh, a young Andy Burnham is trying not to laugh, you know, you might catch someone's, catch someone's that was the one. That was the one that lots of people recommended when uh, Jeremy Corbyn said, it was at the height of the Brexit things, and he said, I went to Brussels and I met some socialist leaders and they said, and he paused and a Tory MP shouted out, who are you? <laughs> and the entire House of Commons falls about. I'm watching, I think, Angela Eagle and Andy Burnham sort of biting their cheeks <laughs> as much as they possibly can. And then Jamie Corbyn didn't find it at all funny. He's like, no, no. And it gets all a bit Frankie Howard. Uh, and it was very funny. But hu humour is really important. If you can, I think, um, if you can sort of harness humour in PMQs, that is part of it. And some people say, you know, it's more serious than that. But it is such an important part as well of, of G'ing up your troops. You know, William Hague says that, you know, he was very good at PMQs, didn't ultimately do him any good in the election in 2001, but it did get him through to the end of that week. It, and uh, it just kept the Tory MP, you know, uh, kept the, the troops happy. It's also something Boris Johnson is acutely aware of. Probably, Often when he makes a gag he's particularly news. pleased with. Um, as a former journalist, he'll look sort of expectantly, <laughs> towards, almost with a wink, uh, which tells you a lot about uh, his priorities. Uh, and I, uh, I interviewed David Cameron once, back when um, he used to do interviews. And... Uh, I asked him about PMQs, and was there a particular PMQs that he remembers really enjoying uh, when he was Prime Minister? And uh, this is the one that he chose. It's from uh, March the 18th, 2015. Let's take a listen. What we did is we took the bureaucracy out of the NHS. Yes, we made two big decisions. Big decision number one was to put more money in, and big decision number two was to take the bureaucracy out. That is why we have nine and a half thousand more doctors, seven and a half thousand more nurses. I can see the Shadow Chancellor chuckling. We, we know the Shadow Chancellor wants to be in the kitchen cabinet. He just doesn't know which kitchen to turn up to. This is the story about Ed Miliband having two kitchens. Somehow, 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 Mr Speaker, I thought he might mention kitchens. Let me just say, let me just say, at least I paid for my kitchen, unlike the government chief whip. to the NHS. So, first broken promise on top-down reorganisation. Next, he said, I refuse to go back to the days when people had to wait for hours on end to be seen in A&E. Now we learn the NHS will miss the four-hour A&E target for the whole of this year for the first time ever. Why did he break that promise? Well, well, well which of his kitchens did he pay for? I think we, uh, we deserve an answer. No, no, I, I do feel sorry. I feel sorry for the leader of the opposition. He literally doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. <laughs> oh, don't worry, there's plenty it's, more. It's the Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's prerogative, and, you know, as much as the, David Cameron would resent the comparison, um, the Prime Minister's prerogative in those situations is to not answer the question and just joke in response. That's a masterclass in that uh, obfuscatory tactic from David Cameron, which Boris Johnson deploys every week. Um, <laughs> and obviously, you know, as a spectator sport, which is um, how politicians see it and how, you know, the media um, sees it and how the public see it as a bit of parliamentary theatre, almost when Ed Miliband starts talking about NHS top-down reorganisation, as important as that was in 2015, you sort of go, come on, get to the next We want the right? kitchens. Yeah. We want the kitchens. And it's, but it's also in check, watching that back as well, Nick Clegg having to sit on the front row, biting his, literally biting his tongue 
And the Lib Dems were, were, were constantly tortured about whether he should be there or not. If he is there, he looks like he's just, you know, this sort of uh, sidekick to David Cameron. And if he wasn't there, it was seen as a snub. It was interesting, um, in that clip, it looked like Harriet Harman was leaning over to Ed Miliband and saying, the jokes aren't that good. They're not that good. They were quite good. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from MasterCard. Connecting small business owners with the right digital tools and support to help big ideas thrive. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. We are at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. <laughs> with an enormous, an enormous live audience. Hundred, don't laugh at that. There's about 20,000 people here. It's amazing. Uh, we've all turned out. Uh, still joined by Patrick McGuire, Red Box editor. We are unpacking the best bits, the highs and lows uh, of PMQs. We started all the way back with 1989 and uh, the very first televised PMQs with Margaret Thatcher. It feels like we've got to, we've got to address the elephant in the room here, Patrick McGuire. The Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn era of PMQs. Yes, you had to be um, charitable, a Prime Minister whose strengths did not lie in witty repartee or uh, quick, nimble uh, feats of verbal dexterity, and a Labour leader who very earnestly um, thought, again, you know, repeat what I just said about Theresa May, uh, times 100 for Jeremy Corbyn's <laughs> uh, you know, uh, feats of, uh, of rhetoric, but also made a point... You know, he won the Labour leadership the first time, not so much on a, you know, an ideological platform of um, you know, full Marxism now, but it was as much about a disdain for Westminster game-playing and Yabu politics as anything else. You know, it was a kinder, gentler politics. So Jeremy Corbyn was very earnest um, in his PMQs, and as you'll have seen so far, that is not often <laughs> a quality that um, is sympathised with in front of a bank of 300-plus uh, Tory MPs. Um, so... Add all that, and it's not a particularly um, enticing cocktail, is it? Still, stay tuned. As we, uh, we are heading back now to... Uh, this is July 2016, so I think it's this, maybe the second uh, PM kick, because it, it started off badly and went downhill from there. Uh, so it's one of the early uh, Prime Minister's questions of, of Theresa May in charge. Uh, this is Jeremy Corbyn uh, against Theresa May. Let's take a listen. Wellness claims have risen for the fourth month in a row. Welfare claims have risen as well. Austerity actually means people being poorer, services being cut and local facilities being closed. In her speech on the steps of Downing Street, she also addressed insecure workers, saying you have a job, but you don't always have job security. Does that mean... Does that mean to those people that are worried about their future in work, Corb I'm talking of the people that sent us here to serve them. Does that mean that she's proposing to scrap the employment tribunal fees, repeal the Trade Union Act or ban zero-hours contract as more than a dozen European nations have already done? That would help to give greater job security to many very worried people in this country. Again, I say to the, uh, the right honourable gentleman, yes, I did say that on the streets of Downing Street, and I think it's very important that us 
that here in this House we consider not only what might be called the more obvious injustices, but actually consider the life for those people for whom they are in work but struggling to make ends meet. It's essential. That's one of the, one of the things that the government has, been done, has done, has actually raised the threshold at which people start to pay income tax, for example. But it's also about making sure that we have more well-paid jobs in this country, which is also what the government is doing. But he, he refers... He refers, I'm interested that he refers to uh, uh, the situation of some workers who might have uh, some job insecurity uh, and potentially unscrupulous bosses. I suspect that there are many members on the opposition benches who might be familiar with an unscrupulous boss. Uh, A boss who doesn't listen to his workers. Uh, A boss... A boss who requires some of his workers to double their workload. A boss, and maybe even a boss who exploits the rules to further his own career. Remind him of anybody. (laughs) I don't think you need any more Jeremy Corbyn. Um, uh, (laughs) I'd forgotten that was as gruesome as I remembered her doing that line. Oh. God, the um, reminder of anyway. But it's, a, it's another prime example there of Jeremy Corbyn not really asking a question, just sort of swimming around in a soup of emotions uh, without really nailing anything. And then Theresa May again just sort of repeating it all back to him. But, but the, the point of Jeremy Corbyn's often very long, rambling questions. Each one would have its own um, very moralistic sort of peroration at the end. Was that they re- his team very quickly realised? that his strengths did not lay, lie in um, you know, the chamber. He hated the chamber. He hated Westminster. Um, so they used those. They, they would clip his sort of two or three minute answers, put them on social media, uh, questions rather, put them on social media, uh, where they would, um, as the kids say, bang, uh, <laughs> uh, get, get retweeted by lots of, um, lots of um, you know, his supporters online, and they become sort of de facto party political broadcasts. And also, we should have pointed out the context of that was immediately after the referendum in 2016, loads of the Labour front bench resigned. At one point, I think Jeremy Corbyn appointed a shadow education secretary who lasted two days in the job before she, she then resigned. She said it was my dream, it's my dream job, and then two days later she had quit. <laughs> uh, so that was the context of, uh, of all of that. Right, let's move on. I think we've probably only got what time for one clip. What would you rather have, the, 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 the COVID clip or the more recent clip of Boris Johnson and Kirstarmer? God, it's a real... I think but because it, choice. COVID, surely. Yeah, let's do that. So, so obviously one of the big problems that Keir Starmer's had uh, since he became Labour leader was that he hasn't had, as we've seen in all of, and heard in all of the clips so far, is the, the, the roar of the crowd, as we have enjoyed from you uh, so far today. That when you, you land a good joke, you get everyone behind you. Actually, Jeremy Corbyn often struggled with that because all of his Labour MPs hated him. Um, but Keir Starmer hasn't been able to do that because... Uh, of social distancing, often at various times him or uh, Boris Johnson were, were appearing via Zoom and it's very difficult to get a crowd going via Zoom, as I know from personal experience. So let's, let's go uh, back to, the, I think this is a clip of Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer uh, back in November uh, last year. Let's take a listen. The Prime Minister must understand there's a huge gap in the system because if you can't afford to isolate, there's little point in being tested or traced. And whilst the Prime Minister and Chancellor won't pay people enough to isolate properly, we learnt this week that they can find £21 million of taxpayers' money to pay a go-between to deliver lucrative contracts to the Department of Health. £21 million. I remind the Prime Minister that a few weeks ago he couldn't find that amount of money for free school meals for kids over half-term. 
Does the Prime Minister think that £21 million to a middleman was an acceptable use of taxpayers' money? Prime Minister. Literally He talks about hindsight. I say catch up. I called for a circuit breaker. The Prime Minister stood there and said it'd be a disaster. He wasn't going to do it. Then he caught up and did exactly that just a few weeks later. We've now got a longer, harder lockdown as a result of his delay. So I won't take that from him. Now, that's an example, Patrick, of a... If the House of Commons had been full, both sides would have been... It was quite tetchy. There was some, like, proper interrogation of what the government was doing and a counter-argument, but you just can't get that if you're doing it on Zoom. And the two laughter lines would have got huge roars from the respective sides. You know, that, that answer was very typical of Boris Johnson's PMQ style. Apparently the sessions in number 10 where um, he's briefed for number 10 are basically um, like uh, joke workshopping sessions. Um, <laughs> and often, you know, once he, once he alights on a joke he likes, he'll hear it again and again and again. Um, we hear the minestrone, uh, you know, picking a crouton from the minestrone of Keir Starmer's argument, vacillation and vaccination, and of course his favourite... Uh, um, Captain Hindsight. Although it's interesting, the Captain Hindsight thing, we, uh, every month on Times Radio, we do a focus group in the same way that political parties do them, get a group of swing voters together, they're found independently by some market researchers, and we just ask them, what's going, you know, what do you think of politics? And that Captain Hindsight thing started cropping up. They're actually repeating it again and again at PMQs. The thing that Boris Johnson will do is he'll just put in every answer. So if the TV news want to use a clip, it'll end up having Captain Hindsight in it, and then it becomes that sort of loop. So actually the you say hindsight, I say catch-up. That, that actually was part of Keir Starmer realising it was hitting home. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs> 